Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. In 2018, Jocelyn Benson was elected as Secretary of State in Michigan. It was part of a historic sweep where women were also elected to the governorship and to the attorney general's office. Then the coronavirus hit and Donald Trump went on the warpath, personally attacking Governor Whitmer as she fought to get her citizens access to needed medical equipment. Well, now he's also attacked Jocelyn, calling her a rogue secretary of state for her plan to make sure all Michigan voters can apply to get an absentee ballot this fall, keeping them safe from the virus and ensuring everyone has a chance to vote. Jocelyn joined us to talk about the monumental importance of voting rights in the age of Trump and the coronavirus. This year, we saw the Year of the Woman 2.0. Gretchen Whitmer, Dana Nessel, Jocelyn Benson, Debbie Stabenow, and the list goes As on. As the Secretary of State of the great state of Michigan. And I will perform my duties. And I will perform my duties. To the best of my ability. To the best of my ability. So help me God. So help me God. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson says she sees nothing wrong with paper ballots. The Michigan Secretary of State says the voter absentee ballot applications are a great way for voters to vote in upcoming elections without risking their health. Ahead of a planned visit to Michigan tomorrow, President Trump is targeting the leaders of the state on Twitter. President Trump on Wednesday threatened to withhold federal funding to Michigan after the state announced that all of the state's registered voters would receive applications for absentee ballots in the mail this year. Hi, this is Jocelyn Benson, Secretary of State of Michigan. I'm fighting every day to ensure that every citizen's voice is heard and every vote is counted. Sorry, not sorry. First of all, thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. It's interesting because you have a job that I don't think a lot of people fully grasp what you do. As Secretary of State in Michigan, you're responsible for overseeing elections. But can you give my listeners really an overview of what that entails and just broadly what the job yeah, entails? Yeah, Secretary of State position in most states overseas democracy. And that means everything from money in politics and regulating and promoting disclosure of that to the actual act of casting a ballot and making sure those votes are counted accurately, protecting the security of the process. Anything that goes into ensuring that our democracy runs well flows through each state secretary of state. And from your perspective, what is the biggest threat to our democracy? And you can do that broadly, but you can also do that in a Michigan way. Yeah, well, Well, I always sort of say that a healthy democracy requires an engaged and informed electorate. And so in that way, the biggest threat is a disengaged and misinformed electorate. I think you need both. You need everyone voting in particular, and especially citizens of underrepresented communities whose voices have historically not been at the table for decisions that are made that affect them. But you also need citizens to be informed about all the aspects of an issue so they can make independent decisions about what's best for them, their families, their communities. So to me, really, you need people running the system, secretaries of state, and you need elected representatives who who all kind of 
flow into that and enable and encourage engagement and information, of course, the media as well. But if you fall short on either of those two metrics, those two pieces, then democracy is threatened. And I think that's some of what we are seeing today where you have, in some cases, low turnout or disengagement or this feeling of apathy or my vote doesn't matter, my voice doesn't matter, which is the exact opposite of what's real in a democracy, or people not having access to accurate information about the decisions that are being made and the decision makers that are making them so that they can hold them accountable. We hear and we've heard a lot about Michigan this cycle. So what makes it so important in this election besides the Electoral College? And how did it become a battleground state? Michigan is a collection of voters that really reflects the entire country in many ways, certainly in the Midwest. You've got a very diverse population. We've got the largest concentrations, for example, of Arab American voters in the country. We've got strong urban areas with unique stories and histories like Detroit and Flint and Mm. high levels of communities of color, growing Latino population. And then a lot of the state is very rural. And so the racial demographics, the economic demographics or stratification. You have also right next to Detroit, one of the wealthiest per capita communities in the country. And so you've got in some ways intense segregation and many of the problems that afflict and have afflicted the country historically are reflected in in Michigan. There's a great saying I saw when I first moved here when Michigan sneezes, the whole country gets a cold. That in some ways, Michigan Mm. is a bellwether state for a lot of different things that because of the people, because of the history, because of the communities, that can indicate how the rest of the country might be feeling or going and the attention on our state, certainly over the past 10 years when it comes to presidential elections, really underscores that. Well, let's talk about November. I want to really sort of dive into what the plan is now that the pandemic changed everything, because I feel like we're going to all be looking to you and to Michigan to sort of figure this out mm-hmm. because you you are a battleground state. So what are the plans? How do we ensure that people are going to be able to vote well, safely? I'm confident that really in this age, this moment of uncertainty, there are two things that are absolutely certain, at least with regards to our elections in Michigan and many other states. One, the election in November will happen. It will happen on time. It will happen on schedule. And two, citizens in Michigan and many other states will have a right to participate in that election from their home. I am coming to you from the Roberts family voting booth here at my dining room table. This is Dave. He's at home in Seattle, Washington. Dave's done a lot of reporting on what he says is a simple solution to how America can vote during the pandemic. Tens of millions of people in America vote by mail now every election, and it's fine. (laughs) Washington is one of the few states that runs its entire election through the mail. I think I've been voting by mail since I got to Washington in 2000. I mean, everyone who's done it loves it. Voting by mail basically works by taking two important elements of voting, verifying your identity and filling out the ballot, and moving them from a polling place to your home, where the ballot gets mailed a few weeks before the election. So they will not have to choose between their health and their right to vote, which is critical in ensuring that at this moment of a historical election, possibly the most significant election in our lifetime, that every citizen knows exactly how to vote and doesn't worry that in casting their vote, they'll be risking their health. So our work really over the next five and a half months or you know, however many weeks are left until that November election, which is coming at us quite quickly, is to make sure that every citizen feels confident in the process, knows 
exactly how to ensure their ballots are cast and counted and their voices are heard and that they are as engaged, if not even more so than ever before, in using the power of their vote to hold their elected officials accountable. You said before, and I agree with you, that I feel like a lot of at least the younger generations feel that their voice and their vote does not make a difference. And it's always been hard to get out certain votes. How are we going to do this when there is a pandemic? I know it's going to happen. I know it has to happen. I know it's going to happen on time. I just can't wrap my head around. I mean, unless, you know, by some miracle, McConnell wakes up and decides, you know what, everybody should be allowed to vote from home. That's what we're going to do this election cycle. How are we going to do It's really up to secretaries of state who are leading the way. Alex Padilla in California worked to implement a program where every voter in the state will get their ballot sent to them automatically. You've got that same that's been in place for many years in Oregon and Washington, championed by secretaries of state, frankly, of both sides of the aisle. Because one of the other really important aspects of this office is we administer democracy. We make sure every voice is heard. It's not a partisan position and oftentimes been misused as that in the past. But that said, I think secretaries of state that I've been working with my colleagues around the country are working overtime in the vast majority of states to ensure every citizen has that preserved right to vote by mail. In Michigan, we've got this unique story because in 2018, voters voted overwhelmingly to amend our state constitution to create a right to vote by mail, as well as many other things like an automatic voter registration and the ability to register to vote on election day. So really what it comes down to, in my view, is making sure one, voting is a very personal thing. So making sure citizens essentially have choices on how to exercise their vote, that they're well-informed about how to exercise all those choices, and that one of those choices is the ability to vote without having to leave your home. And so, you know, in Michigan, we're working to make that a reality, to build that infrastructure, because there's many pieces to it, but it essentially requires and enables every citizen to be fully informed on that ability to have their voice heard. And again, that confidence that their vote will be counted if they receive their ballot and return it through the mail without ever leaving their home. And I think we've already seen Trump trying to attack oh, yeah. uh, the idea of mail-in voting as being something that can be hacked or that is vulnerable. President Donald Trump on Wednesday lashed out at two states seeking to embrace mail-in voting. Breaking, Michigan sends absentee ballots to 7.7 million people ahead of the primaries and general election. This was done illegally and without authorization by a rogue secretary of state. I will ask to hold up funding to Michigan if they want to go down this voter fraud path. That was a tweet from the president. What would you say to someone that was listening to the podcast right now where they're like, but I heard that it's not safe to vote by it's mail. That when people actually, as he does and he said, vote by mail, then they will question it. The hypocrisy is clear. I think to me, the there's two things we know. One, that there are going to be in this election cycle efforts to confuse citizens about their rights. It's a different form of voter suppression, but it's one in which we doubt our ability to vote. We doubt the, the sanctity of our vote. And when you have lawmakers or leaders sowing those seeds of doubt based on false information, it is one of those great threats to our democracy. It is heartbreaking. It is one of the saddest things for me to see. It's essentially people taking advantage of the uncertainty right now by sowing false seeds of doubt in our right. election. That said, you always have to look at the motivation. Sometimes it's motivated for very political agendas. And oftentimes you have to then look at the data. What the data shows is that more people vote 
when it's convenient to do so. And more people vote when you vote by mail. We just had an election actually on May 5th, local elections, and we enabled 99% of the electorate to vote by mail by mailing everyone an application to request their ballot be sent to them. 99% of the citizens who voted in that election voted by mail and turnout doubled. Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson is doing what we hope many of you are doing today, voting. There's still time to vote. Polls are open until 8 o'clock. You can show up. Uh, if you've already been registered to vote, show up at your local precinct. If you're not registered to vote, there's still time. Bring your residency verification to your local clerk and you can register to vote and cast your ballot right there. Thousands of Michiganders cast their votes in yesterday's election, the first of its kind in the midst of a pandemic. On a conference call with reporters, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson said the turnout was historic. We have seen the vast majority, um, you know, upwards of 80 or 90 percent of those voting today have voted by mail. The number of absentee ballots rose overnight to 99 percent of all votes cast. Yesterday's turnout set a record for May elections too, a whopping 25 percent, double the average. The data across the board shows turnout increases. More people vote when they can vote by mail. And when more people vote, whoever has power, it creates uncertainty for whether they retain that power. Right. So right, there's an immediate right. question mark and the flag that goes up. But that's a long way of saying that I think it's he's more worried about what will happen if more people vote than anything else. And that's what's underlying those comments. But how do those comments change what you do? Is it more mm-hmm. about a campaign of awareness? How do you fight it? That's the yeah. thing. So many of these issues that we're facing because of this man, I don't know how we fight attacks on elections and voting rights. So how does it change what you do? I think the beauty of democracy is that it's a team sport. And secretaries of state, election administrators play a key role in making sure just that the trains run on time, that people get their ballots, that they're counted accurately, and that that works. But voters have a responsibility, too, and an opportunity to engage their community, to get people aware of accuracy, data, facts, truth. It's one of the ways in which social media can be a blessing. We've also seen it used to sow seeds of doubt and misinformation quite effectively. I see it as the responsibility that we all have to ensure that we know not just how to vote, but that we're informed as well. And we can't necessarily farm out the duty of being informed voters. We have to embrace that responsibility for ourselves and those around us. I think that's an important part of it. Democracy is also more than just about voting. That is a key aspect of it, but it's a year-round sport. It's one in which staying engaged, informed, and spreading awareness about real facts is 24-7 commitment, not just one day every four years when we cast a vote for the presidency. It's a lot of work. And if we don't, then you do have people rising to power who don't reflect the will of the country and the majority of the electorate. Quality of life and many other things change and are impacted as a result. I would think it's got to be super important to be impartial, right, when administering elections. And then you get these partisan attacks from the other party. I mean, does that affect how you do your job? Is it difficult for you to stay neutral? My work throughout my career has been around civil rights. I started my career at the Southern Poverty Law Center in Alabama. 
And it was really like being on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma in the early stages. I was just graduating from college where I was instilled with this great commitment of the freedom fighters who come before us to ensure that every vote counted. And so for me, like that's where my source of inspiration comes from, those who came before us to ensure democracy works and to fight for every citizen's voice. And that's what this is about for me. I have a core belief that if you can get everyone at the table in voting and engaged and informed, better decisions emerge. That's what history teaches us. So my focus has been on that. And I think that's what you want from someone who's administering elections. What I've also found, though, in this job is how important it is to talk to the communities that people aren't talking to. And by that, I mean, even in a partisan election cycle, both sides oftentimes will just talk or message to the communities they know are going to vote or are likely to vote. And oftentimes, low-income communities, places where people are not voting in high numbers, they don't get candidate visits. And their issues, their concerns aren't really partisan. They just want to be able to put food on the table and take care of their kids and make sure they can drink safe water. Meanwhile, with the Democrats, actress Alyssa Milano made campaign stops with Gretchen Whitmer, Garland Gilchrist, Debbie Stabenow, and other local candidates. I caught up with her after their stop in Grand Rapids at Teamsters 406 and asked her why of all places she chose to come here. Honestly, when the opportunity arose, I thought it would be a great opportunity. First, because I've never been to Michigan, but second, because... I'm pretty angry about what happened in Flint. You know, to a certain extent, those have become partisan issues, but they're really not. They're just real. Like, what matters for a community, anyone can support that. Well, I think that's true with all of the issues that we face. We wind up politicizing everything. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's really about how can we make lives better for those around us. And one of the things I've done in my job is identify the communities with the lowest turnout. We actually looked at the 100 neighborhoods in our state that have, in November 2008, 10% of people voted. Like, consistently low turnout. And these are also communities that are often neglected by those in decision-making authorities, frankly, on both sides. And I've been going there, just talking to people and listening and saying, how could we better serve you? Now, of these 100 precincts, the vast majority are in Detroit. 40 of them are in Detroit. 20 of them are in Flint. And so you also see this pattern of neglect where people are voting and then their communities don't get the investment and resources that others do. So having conversations about that has been really inspiring, in part because I went in there expecting to listen and not be welcome because I don't necessarily look like those you know, members of this community. I wouldn't be trusted. And so I'm thinking, you know, how can I create a space where people are honestly talking to me about how we can do a better job for them? And what I found in these conversations has been not a single person has said, you're not welcome here. Everyone has said, yeah. thank you for coming. Yeah. Not a single person has said, I don't vote because I don't think my vote matters. Mm. everyone has said, I don't vote because I can't. I have a criminal history, to which point I say in Michigan, you can, regardless of your criminal history. So that's, and then people are like, you're kidding. And then it's, you know, I don't know who to vote for because I don't know anything about the candidates. I don't know how to get to the precinct. I don't know how to do all these things government wants me to do in order to vote. So we've been focusing on that. But all that to say is it's been really inspiring to see if we can make voting more accessible and convenient for every community, for every citizen, we will see more people engaged in voting. And I think our country will be better as a result. Let me ask you this. Do you think that the federal government 
should have a larger role in national elections? I mean, it just mm. seems like there's so many problems on state levels, right? The hanging chads in 2000 in Florida, the North Carolina gerrymandering, the election machine problems in Georgia. I don't know if every secretary of state is able to stay neutral or do their job as well as you do. Do, do we need some kind of federal oversight? Yeah, I think the federal government has had an important role to play historically, in particular, with creating a baseline of expectation for what our democracy should be like for every citizen, you know, making sure that no one's discriminated against. Our constitution has been amended more times around expanding the franchise than any other one reason, right? So the federal government has had this historical critical role to play in protecting everyone's right to vote and ensuring no one falls victim to discrimination of any kind that would block their voice from being heard. The Voting Rights Act, which is the reason I became a lawyer is because I wanted to enforce the Voting Rights Act, is a great example of that. It's been gutted in recent years as the battle over democracy has taken a national tone, perhaps it always has. But that said, the, the government in recent years, I think, has abdicated a bit its responsibility to ensure every voter has an equal access to the vote. And there's many reasons why that is and why that has happened. I think it's an important role the federal government has to play. And additionally, in providing funding for states, including fighting you know, right. to administer elections during COVID. The Michigan Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, had undertaken a completely lawful, routine, and in fact, laudatory move to send out under Michigan law absentee ballot applications to the voters of her state. Reason being, so that those voters do not have to go to the polls in the fall, possibly amidst a pandemic, if they do not want to. The president then falsely claimed this was done illegally and without authorization by a rogue secretary straight. He then, listen to this, threatened to hold up funding to Michigan if they want to go down this voter fraud path. I'm dumbfounded that this is controversial, especially because there are Democratic and Republican secretaries of state are doing just what we're doing here in Michigan. So I'd like to see the federal government play an important role. I know there's many individuals like Congressman John Lewis in federal government who would say the same and have been pushing for that. And the lack of that type of moral authority from the federal government in support of democracy is part of what has harmed our democracy today. But that's to educate the states. The states have a critical role to play as well. We're yeah. a laboratory yeah. of democracy. It's, again, a partnership, a team effort, but every player needs to play their role. The thing that keeps me up at night is election security. Because, I mean, it's just coming from everywhere. We've got external agitators. We've got internal bad actors. We have unregulated companies making voting machines. We can't audit, but we seem to be able to hack with ease. So how are you securing elections? One, my background, I used to run a law school. I was the dean of a law school before I became secretary of state. And my instinct is always like, get the smartest people in the room, let them disagree and like work it out, but bring all of the smart ideas to the table and use that to inform what you do. And so I created a task force on election security upon my election to basically bring all these national experts, including those in federal government to Michigan to give us all the ideas, all the suggestions, all the areas for improvement, and help us build a plan for securing our elections. And we've got different pieces that we're implementing of that plan, but it really comes down to two things. Securing our elections is one about making sure the infrastructure is secure, making sure our machines can't be hacked. So to address that, we're doing 
post-election audits, risk limiting audits to ensure every paper ballot, we have paper ballots in Michigan, that's critical. Paper ballots are then audited to make sure the machines are counting them accurately. So you know, that's one example. We have various other pieces of our infrastructure securing our voter registration databases so they can't be hacked. So we focus on that and are working with, you know, again, leading national computer scientists and others to test systems, stay ahead of emerging threats and all that. The second piece of election security, though, is really in partnership with voters. So much about election security is not just about hacking the system. It's also about hacking the mind of voters so that they and you see when you evaluate mm. as the U.S. Senate committee mm. found the Russian influence in the 2016 elections. It's about sowing seeds of doubt in our democracy, in the sanctity of the process among the electorate and using that to sow division and cause problems in the sanctity of the process. So we all also have a responsibility as citizens to fight against efforts to misinform voters about their rights, about the process, and to take various different forms, but to be active, engaged, critical thinkers in the information we're getting and passing on. And it's the same for campaigns and thought leaders as well. So our efforts around election security really focus on those two things and educating and empowering citizens to fight back against deceptive practices we feel is as critical as, as protecting the infrastructure of the system itself. With so much going on, what do you think is the biggest, I guess, risk to this election? I think if citizens stay home or don't vote because they feel they can't or they shouldn't, it's unsafe. that to me is the biggest concern I have and what we're working every day to fight against. We want every citizen in Michigan and beyond to know that and have full faith that they can exercise their right to vote this fall and can do so with full faith in our democratic institutions. <sighs> it feels like a lot. It is. I democracy mean, intentionally was set up to require all of us to play a role in right, every aspect. Right. And so that is its beauty and also its challenge. So in all these issues, fighting back on election security, making sure that the November election is an accurate reflection of the will of the citizens of our country. All of that, you know, gets down to all of us working together. Look, the, the Voting Rights Act didn't happen because Lyndon Johnson said, you know what we need? <laughs> we right. need a federal law. It happened because citizens demanded equality and citizens went to Mississippi and registered voters and stood on yeah. a bridge and showed that courage. So to me, that is what our democracy really is about. It's about its people. And at the secretary of state level, it's a unique role to play. And I think it's much rather used instead of using it to, towards partisan end, using it towards like engaging everyone in, in yeah. voting and in our democracy. I actually took all of 20 secretaries of state to Selma five months into my tenure because I was like, this is what we're about, guys. This is, you know, and walked yeah. across the bridge. But so much of the work that we do is about enabling our system to be a conduit for the electorate's voice, the voter's voice. But we can't do that unless voters believe in it, believe in the system as well and seek to exercise their vote and demand in times when it's withheld or suppressed that we do better and fight with them against voter suppression and other things. I mean, honestly, it's why I got politically active, because what happened mm -hmm. in 2000 to Al Gore, I was so completely horrified. And it was the first moment in my life where I was like, oh, maybe yeah. they can't be trusted. And I promised myself that I would do everything I could and within my power to help people to vote. And that's when I started driving people to the polls. 2004, that's when I started driving people to the polls because of what happened in 2000. So I do Less think... Less than a thousand votes changed our country's history. Oh, it's so crazy. <laughs> in one state. Yeah. 
the other piece of this to me is that so much of our history and who we are as a nation is defined by who wins elections. And when that comes down to failures of the system of democracy, for whatever reason, then our history is defined by things that aren't fully accurate. You know, people gain power in a way that is not what the majority of people would want. And we see this since 2016, look how much our country has changed now with the response to the coronavirus. So much is decided by an election. And I know we feel sometimes that one vote doesn't matter or four votes or the yeah. vote of our household or what, but it does. It defines who we are as a nation. And we're seeing what happens when people don't vote oftentimes. Exactly. Um, have people elected that don't reflect who we are as a country. I want to switch gears and talk about some of the recent events in Michigan. You've mm. had some, I mean, it appears terrifying things happening. There are mm-hmm. armed men storming the state house, demanding the governor reopen the state despite overwhelming scientific consensus to the yeah. contrary. What is up with that? What's happening? And who it's are these people? It is heartbreaking to see, especially when we have a governor who has brought together people from various communities, the business community all over the state to inform her decisions. He's making, she's making very clear data-driven decisions. In some ways, it is a reflection of misinformation that citizens are in one in terms of what spurs someone to oppose it. It's misinformation that they're hearing from different sources that we can, we can talk about. You know, it's hard when those sources come from yeah. the highest levels of power, yeah. but but it's, it's sort of spurred on by misinformation. It, it's politicized, a political and partisan agenda that's not necessarily about the health of our state or our communities or families. And, and I think first and foremost, I'm so honored to be working alongside a governor who has been steadfast and resolute in continuing to do what's best for everyone, even those who seek to do her harm. And it's a reflection of good leadership, certainly. And when you, again, look throughout our love studying history, the decisions that are often made are ones that we make as leaders when they're unpopular, but they're right. And and you just hope that everyone with power to make decisions that affect us all do what's right, not what's popular, not what's politic. And certainly in times like these, it's even more important. So it's been scary. Certainly it's unnerving the days that it's happened where there have been, you know, people with guns storming the Capitol building. And you just think, what is this? What have we become? And yeah. there's also the racial dynamics, of course, that you right. know, if you have sort of communities of color doing things, you just sort of see the privilege of a community that didn't have that reaction that communities of color would have. And, you know, alongside everything that's happened in Georgia with the Aubrey murder, there's that dynamic too, and just a real elevation of the issues of criminal justice and inequalities there. You know, I, I think everyone in our state, regardless of your party affiliation, should be able to denounce violence in our capital. Yeah. And we haven't had that. Well, that's because we don't have a leader at the highest level mm. that is able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And again, I mean, that's the leader that was put there by an election. Right. So that's why there's when we have an election coming up, there's all the more reason to ensure that voices yeah. are heard in the political arena the proper way. But yeah, so it's been in the gosh, I mean, even just this week, there was a vote a legal opinion by the attorney general that the Capitol Commission could outlaw firearms in the Capitol and they declined to do so, even amidst people leveraging threats against elected office holders. And in this time of great anxiety and uncertainty, to have that exacerbated by this type of behavior, it's just really disappointing and sad all around. And I think moments of crisis, you can either can either bring out the best in us or they can bring out the worst. Yeah. And I think we all as individuals have a choice that we can make. And certainly that's what we're also seeing reflected. We're seeing great leadership, but we're also seeing some of the worst behavior that we can see in a society. Well, and I think that a lot of it is stemming from this lack of a coordinated effort 
effort in the beginning. It's like, wear masks, don't wear masks, please don't wear masks. Yeah, yeah, today we're going to wear masks. And when it's something as simple as protecting yourself with a mask and that message gets botched and there's no federal guidelines for reopening, even though everyone's talking about reopening, I think that yeah. there is no real sort of beacon of truth that we can yeah. trust. I think Fauci yeah. is doing the best job he possibly can be doing. And the CDC, I mean, we we heard a few weeks ago that the CDC had guidelines and Trump is editing them right now, but states are already opening up. Wouldn't it be nice to have some sort of blanket guidelines so we're all on the same page? Because, I mean, as far as I know, we don't have barriers protecting us from other states that are opening where the pandemic is growing. I had a friend who was on a drive the other day and talking about driving through different states, and I just thought, don't get out of your car in that state. <laughs> right. You know, in, you know, I live in Detroit. And even just this morning, I learned of a colleague, former state senator, Morris Hood, who passed away by the coronavirus. And there's been significant racial disparities in Detroit and other places in terms of who's been affected by this. But certainly in communities of color, African-American communities have been highly affected across the country for multiple reasons because of this. We have a task force on this in Michigan and elsewhere. But losing someone or losing many people to this virus versus not knowing anyone who was affected by it for multiple reasons and therefore being more susceptible to not believing things are real or that you need to protect yourself and or that the restrictions are for good reason, for your own good and for your own health. And my deputy secretary of state is Hester Wheeler. He ran the Detroit NAACP for a long time. He's African-American uh, in his 60s. And his experience with this virus, he's lost so many people he knows because of the disproportionate impact this has had on the African-American community. It's so different. And the experience that someone in a rural community might have based on, you know, who they know and, and who's been affected. I think that plays a role, too. And it's sort of more a reflection of our society and how right. disconnected we are, that we can't know or feel compassion towards those who may live in another place, <laughs> but whose experience is very different than someone else's. I don't know if that makes sense, but this is it something does. I've been thinking about is we see just the disparities of the impact of the loss of the virus, that the virus has caused. Thing that I've been thinking about is how do we come out of this better than we went mm -hmm. into this? Mm. Because it is such a reflection of every failing that we have that is in place, that is not in place. And when you look at the success that other countries have had in preventing the amount of deaths that we have, it is incredibly heartbreaking to me. One of the things that all of those countries or a lot of those countries have in common is they're all run by women. 
And since the 2018 election, Michigan's top elected offices are now all held by women. Whether it's a governor, attorney general, secretary of state or senator, Michigan selected a Democratic woman for every statewide office on Tuesday's ballot. Nationally, more women will serve in Congress than ever before. Political analyst Dave Dulio says it comes as no surprise. The Me Too movement is without a doubt out in front. I'm wondering, do you think that that changes how a state is run? I know that the fact that I get to work with an attorney general and a governor and a chief justice of the Supreme Court, who we have some shared experiences as a result of our gender and other things, that we're all very unique people, but it creates a solidarity that otherwise might not be there. I can just say I'm so grateful every day that, as I said before, I get to work with this governor. And I learned so much from seeing how she's handled every crisis with grace and dignity and thoughtfulness. And you see, you know, the fact that she's a mom and the fact that she's a daughter, the experiences that are unique to her gender and being a woman that have shaped who she is. You see that reflected in a lot of the ways she makes decisions. I've certainly, and I've said this to her many times, I can't imagine anyone else in the position that she's in right now doing as good a job as she has. And I think part of that is, you know, what she's learned as a mom as a daughter and as a female lawmaker for most of her career, being one of the only female voices in the room and the grit and the grace that that generates in you and the ability to like bring people together and make informed decisions. So I think a lot of that has combined to make her a great leader. And I think you see that a lot of female executives who've had to overcome a lot in order to be taken seriously. Uh, Michigan, all she does is she has no idea what's going on. And all she does is say, oh, it's the federal government's fault. I don't want them to say things that aren't true. I want them to be appreciative. I was the youngest woman to run a law school when I became dean at Wayne Law. And I saw immediately how it's a different type of approach you need to take to leadership when you are a minority voice in any way. And I think it certainly shaped her. I'm sure it shaped a lot of female leaders. And also the other thing is, is we don't have a lot of women to look Mm -hmm. up to and say, I want to do it like that. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that is changing now. But we are really kind of making that leadership up as we go along, being inclusive of everything that we are, because it's very hard. I mean, I remember totally unrelated, but I had an agent who I loved very much and she was a woman and she left the agency. And I said to her, I said, I don't understand. Like, why are you leaving? And she Mm -hmm. said to me, she said, because I look around and there's no one that's doing it the way I think Mm. I need to do it. So I need to get mm-hmm. out of here and figure out what that is. Mm-hmm. And it just struck a chord with me because so often we are shaping what leadership looks like by trying to emulate what our male counterparts make leadership look like. And I think it is the grace of Governor Whitmer. It is her ability to have empathy and compassion and all of those things that make women special. Because Mm -hmm. of, not in spite of. And so I'm just so pleased that my daughter, she's five, and that she gets to grow up in a world where she hopefully will have women in leadership positions that she can say, you know what, I want to do like that. I worked in sports briefly before I was elected. We've talked about that. Yeah, as you're saying all that, I'm just thinking about that as well, because I've never... 
felt more aware of my gender and the way in which it impacted my ability to be effective and successful than when I worked in sports. And there's this irony that most women executives have some background in sports and as athletes, many C-suite executives have worked as athletes or have some sort of sports in their background. And this irony that one of the industries where women are the least empowered is also the one industry that can create female leaders in other industries. I, I think we all similarly have a role to play in making sure sports is accessible to everyone in many levels. And I know you've worked a lot on that too. And and there's it's a similar piece to, you know, what does leadership look like? How do we create a world that women know that they can truly be anything, even what they cannot see? And what I always tell, especially when I'm speaking to young female athletes, is that you have to be what you can't see right now. <laughs> like, you, right. Can, you know, and hopefully you'll see it more, but you have to be that champion. You have to be that leader. And I'm really hopeful that your daughter and other young girls that are going to be growing up in an environment where there are more female leaders will really just help us reach a tipping point where every young girl grows up knowing that they can do anything. And really just be able to close your eyes and dream of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be an umpire. That was my first job. That oh, I that's wanted. so cool. But I was like, that's not open to me. I just was like a young girl, even in high school, I thought, well, be, you know, I can't be an umpire. I didn't, I didn't even think that much about it. I just was off the table. Right. And that really impacted me. And so I got into politics instead. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but that said, as an athlete myself, and can just see all the different ways in which many industries are, are not equally open to women and what women leaders could do to those industries to improve them if they were equally open to women. And, and politics is certainly another example of that. And then I think just finally, I'd like to ask you, because I know right now everything feels so raw and scary and uncertain and disheartening. What just gives you hope about 2020? The goodness of the people we are seeing emerge in this crisis, the people who every night in New York City applaud the hospital workers, the the people who are sacrificing their lives so that they could take care of other human beings in hospitals. Just the goodness that has emerged in humanity throughout this gives me hope and confidence that we will get through this together. The knowledge that things like elections that determine who has power in this country will continue, that the industry that creates vaccines is working to do that too. The goodness of humanity will prevail through the individuals who are choosing to emulate that right now. And so much of who we are as a country, as a society is going to be defined over the next year in terms of how we win elections and how we elect people, but also how we do everything that we do from shopping to entertainment to playing sports. And so I think the more people who make informed decisions for the best of the community who don't fall victim, I guess you could say, to partisan agendas and divisive actions, the more people who choose good and choose service, the better off we'll be as a society. And so a lot of that's still unwritten, but it gives me hope because we see so many people choosing goodness, choosing service, choosing community, choosing to love their neighbor. And that ultimately, that choice, individuals making that choice is, I think, what's going to bring us through this. I am so glad there is you in this world. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I appreciate you so much. Well, since this conversation was recorded, Donald Trump publicly attacked Jocelyn for doing her job and protecting voting rights, something he knows is bad for him and the Republican Party. So because of that, we asked her to close out today's episode with some words about that attack. Here is Jocelyn. Hi, my name is Jocelyn Benson, but you might know me as that rogue Secretary of State from Michigan. At least, that's what the President of the United States calls me. 
His recent tweets about my decision to send all Michigan voters applications to safely vote by mail suggested I had gone rogue and acted illegally in informing our voters about their rights. He was wrong. In Michigan, every registered voter has the right to vote by mail. And as we collectively endure this moment of great uncertainty caused by a global pandemic that has taken the lives of nearly 100,000 Americans, it's both within my authority and responsibility as Michigan's chief election officer to ensure every voter knows that they do not need to risk their health to cast their ballot. Our democracy requires no less. So why is the president attacking me, spreading false information about the voting rights of our citizens and my authority to protect them, even going so far as to threaten to withhold federal funding from our state unless we comply with his demands? Well, the obvious answer is that Michigan is one of several states that will heavily influence the outcome of this year's presidential election. But there's more to it than that. This year, perhaps more than any other, Americans will be inundated by efforts to confuse them about the elections process, their rights, the issues at stake, and whether the elections will be held at all. These efforts, foreign, domestic, partisan, or simply malicious, are designed to foster mistrust in our elections process, depress turnout, and erode confidence in the election results and the sanctity of our democracy. They are a real threat to the health of our republic, and they will only escalate in the months ahead. That's why it's incumbent upon all of us, regardless of where we are or what our positions are, to stand up in the face of any attempts to deploy false information about our elections and our voters' rights. We must be vigilant against any and all attempts to hack our voters' minds with social media posts and scare tactics that falsely threaten their confidence in our elections by proactively seeking out reliable sources of information and encouraging productive dialogue. Now, make no mistake, it will take all of us, every single one of us, to work together if we are going to disarm and diminish attempts to confuse our electorate. But only by doing so can we fully succeed in ensuring our elections are a secure and accurate reflection of the will of the people. Now is not the time for partisan gamemanship, but this moment in history requires that we come together and resist attempts to delegitimize our elections and silence the voice of our voters. We cannot let misinformation whether it comes from the White House, the Kremlin, or anywhere else, sow seeds of doubt in our elections process. Facts must prevail over fear. Otherwise, it is not one party that will lose to the other, but our nation that will lose its democracy. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.